Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/host. An Erio's original. I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst-case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith and I am the alarmist. Thanks for tuning into The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest disasters and figure out who's to blame. Today we'll be talking about the disappearance of the great aviator Amelia Earhart. Here's what you need to know. In 1937, at the time she set flight on her journey around the globe, Amelia Mary Earhart was one of the most famous women in the world. Here you see Lady Lindy whose triumphant solo flight across the Atlantic is the admiration of the whole world. Born July 24, 1897 in Atchison, Kansas, Earhart was an adventurous child. She was raised primarily by her maternal grandmother, who disapproved of her daredevil and tomboy ways, but nonetheless allowed it. She saw her first plane at age 12 at the Iowa State Fair. But it wasn't until December of 1920 that she'd ride in one when her father paid $10, the equivalent of 120 at the time, for Amelia to take her first flight. She set off on a 10-minute ride from the Long Beach Air Show and was forever hooked. Amelia later wrote, "As soon as I left the ground, I knew I myself had to fly." On January of 1921, 
she started taking flying lessons from one of the few female pilots and instructors of the time, Anita Netta Snook. By the summer of that year, Amelia purchased her first plane, a second-hand Kinner Airster biplane painted bright yellow that she nicknamed the Canary. Two years later, on May 15, 1923, Amelia obtained her pilot's license from the world-governing body of aeronautics. She was the 16th woman to ever be issued a pilot's license. By then, the world was going through an aviation frenzy. In 1927, Charles Lindbergh flew the Atlantic solo and became famous overnight. People wanted to follow suit. Amy Guest, a wealthy socialite, planned to fund a trip across the Atlantic for herself with noted piler Wilmer Stoltz and mechanic Lewis Gordon. But after her husband expressed his alarm, she put out a lengthy search to find the right woman to make this flight in her stead. In 1928, Amelia Earhart became the first woman to fly across the Atlantic as part of this three-member group. While she did not actually fly the plane, she kept the plane's log and turned the experience into a best-selling book. But Amelia didn't feel being a passenger was worth the praise she was given. I was just baggage on the friendship, like a sack of potatoes. Maybe someday I'll try it alone. This propelled her to do something to earn it. Amelia was bold, courageous, goal-oriented, and unafraid of taking risks. In the coming years, she went on to set numerous records as a pilot. Amelia Earhart was the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic and nonstop across North America. She was also the first person to fly solo from Honolulu to Oakland, Los Angeles to Mexico City, and Mexico City to Newark, to name a few. Amelia made a career out of flying. Her husband, George J.P. Putnam, heir of the publishing house and her former manager, helped set up lectures and public appearances for Amelia, and she quickly became a role model for women. But by 1937, the couple was going through financial hardships, and Putnam pushed Amelia to make another splash. At that point, there were fewer places no one had flown between, and so they decided on a spectacular trip circling the world close to the equator. It would cover more than 30,000 miles and would be flown in a two-engine Lockheed 10E Electra. The plane carried enough fuel to fly for 20 hours at a time. Funded by Purdue University, where Amelia worked as a visiting faculty member, the cost of the plane was over $85,000, an enormous sum at the time. Worried that it would seem like a publicity stunt, the plane was supposed to be a, quote, flying laboratory, although it seems little science was actually planned. In March 1937, Amelia began her journey westward from Oakland and made it as far as Honolulu. There, her plane was damaged after a failed takeoff and had to be sent back to California for repairs. Finally, on May 21, 1937, Amelia Earhart, along with her navigator, Fred Noonan, took off from Oakland on her second attempt. This time, they flew east. For the next 40 days, they made 20 stops including Miami, Brazil, then heading to Africa and Southeast Asia, eventually making their way to Leh, Papua New Guinea. The next leg would be the hardest one. Earhart had to land in the tiny Howland Island, 
Located 2,556 miles from Ley in the mid-Pacific, Howland Island is a mile and a half long and a half mile wide. It would be roughly 20 hours long of a trip, and in preparation, the plane was stripped of any extra weight in order to carry as much extra fuel as possible. Earhart had stowed 274 extra miles of fuel. The morning of July 2nd, they set off. At 7.42 a.m., the Coast Guard picked up a message from Earhart. We must be on you, but we cannot see you. Fuel is running low. Been unable to reach you by radio. We are flying at 1,000 feet. Her last communication was at 8.43 a.m. We are running north and south. After that, she was never heard from or seen again. To this day, multiple theories have come about on the fate of Amelia Earhart and her navigator, Fred Noonan. But no conclusive evidence has ever been found. Amelia Earhart remains the most famous missing person in history. Fun Facts, a.k.a. Death Stats Amelia broke her first aviation record before she had obtained her pilot's license. On October 22, 1922, Earhart flew her plane to 14,000 feet, the world altitude record for female pilots. In 1931, Amelia became the first president of the 99 Club. A group started to assemble mutual support to promote the advancement of aviation and to create a central office to keep files on women in aviation. Amelia Earhart was the second person and the first woman to fly solo, nonstop, across the Atlantic. Powerful winds battered her little plane during this flight, which lasted 14 hours and 56 minutes. She finally landed in Northern Ireland after being blown off course. At the time of her disappearance, the search for Amelia's plane was the most expensive air and sea search in history, costing the U.S. government $4 million. The official search ended a little over two weeks later on July 19th, but Putnam then financed his own private search. At the time of her disappearance, Amelia was 39 years old. A court order declared her legally dead on January 5th, 1939. All right, so with us today, we have producer Amanda Lund. I'm going to try not to be just a sack of potatoes during this podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Amanda. <laughs> and fact checker Chris Smith. A.K.A. just a sack of potatoes. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> and our very special guest, we have Sally Helm, host of History This Week. Hi, Sally. Hi. Nice to be here. We are so excited to have you here with us. I, I am a big fan of the podcast. Oh, likewise. I love your show. Recommend to our listeners that they check it out. I think they'll enjoy. There's a lot of crossover Totally. History well. on both. <laughs> <laughs> Sally, as someone who, you know, works in history, as they might say, was Amelia Earhart like, someone who was, has been on your radar? Um, uh, sorry, that felt like maybe a pun or something. <laughs> have you heard? Well, have you heard of Amelia Earhart? <laughs> or have you heard from her, more importantly? Uh, unfortunately not. I wish I could say yes. I mean, I've definitely heard of her. I feel like she, she's, you know, she's such a feminist icon growing up. She's one of, like, the classic feminist icons, I feel. Like, people are like, oh, yeah, Amelia Earhart. 
and yeah, I don't know. I mean, I am kind of into like, <laughs> this seems wrong to say, but I am kind of into plane crashes. Like they're so mysterious and like, you just kind of can't look away. It's like a really terrifying kind of interesting thing. So I definitely have like, yeah, Amelia's Amelia's been in my in my orbit. A different space pun, a different like aeronautic pun. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you went bigger. Yeah, yeah. Right up to space. <laughs> well, let me try and take this conversation and really make it take off here. Oh, come no. on, Chris. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just going to put a bad one in there. But it, I think it's, it is fascinating. People are so intrigued by plane crashes. Mm-hmm. And like, you're really not very like there's a lot more likely ways that you'll die than being in a plane crash but i think what's even more fascinating to people are these plane disappearances mm-hmm. like there have been a couple in history and the pacific feels like one of these places where uh it, it's possible that could happen i mean we I, i've gone to hawaii before and you just can't help but think of impending doom as you fly over a vast ocean that is really, it's good luck finding anyone. Totally. Yeah. And I think, I feel like maybe when you fly over water, you're right. You sort of feel that sense that like this plane, it looks so big from the ground. You would sort of think, how could it totally disappear? But then when you're up in the sky and you're looking down at the ocean, you're like, oh my God, it was just like a tiny, tiny thing. It could go missing in this night. No one would ever know, you know? How are we not going to disappear? How are we exactly? And not just that, that, but she had a tiny plane. Yeah. And we'll we'll discuss this because uh, that that could have been a factor. Now, let's start talking about uh, Fred Noonan. Okay. Now, he is the the guy who was Amelia's navigator during this trip around the world. And he's an interesting person. According to HistoryCollection.co, during his career with Pan American World Airways, Fred Newman developed the reputation of being a superior celestial navigator. He planned most of Panam Pacific's routes on, in operation at the time of Earhart's proposed flight and held a position of esteem amongst aviators. He also held the reputation of a heavy drinker. He recognized the publicity value of the flight and its potential benefits to the navigation school he planned to establish. This whole thing about celestial navigation, I want to talk about because this is was his expertise. This is why she brought him along. Uh, celestial navigation is is uh, an ancient and modern practice of position fixing that enables a navigator to transition through space without having to rely on estimated calculations to to know their positions. Celestial navigation uses sights or angular measurements taken between a celestial body. Uh, so like the moon, for for instance. Look, yes. I'm not a scientist. It, he used this device. If you see it, it looks like a triangle that with a little telescope. We did an episode about Apollo 13, the mission where like the spacecraft got a had a had like a big explosion, and then they had to get it back to Earth. Tom Hanks, etc. And uh, they used celestial navigation on that flight, like from space. They were looking at the sun and try and like they couldn't they couldn't see because there was foil floating outside the window but that was even on like this you know insanely technical nasa mission they were using just looking at the stars like the oldest navigation possible you know 
so that is is the problem. So, for instance, for Apollo, there's right. foil covering right. your window. In the in the instance of Amelia Earhart, there's clouds, mm. and therefore, if you you know that's a that's a natural barrier. Oh, one totally, might, it's might the say, most classic problem against celestial you know? yeah. navigation. Yeah. Completely. So they're relying on this. Or early form of right. GPS. Very early. The earliest, we might mm. say. <laughs> so basically, he was the navigator, and Amelia was, she's piloting the plane, so she's technically executing the piloting of the plane. I mean, this is pretty bad, a pretty bad case against Fred Noonan, because she's basically reliant on him. Yes, I would right. agree with you. According to Biography.com, the Electra's crew ran into difficulty almost from the start. Witnesses to the July 2nd takeoff reported that a radio antenna may have Hmm. been damaged. It's also believed that due to the extensive overcast conditions, Noonan might have extreme difficulty with celestial navigation. It was later discovered that the flyers were using maps, and listen to this, maps that may have been inaccurate. According to... Two experts. Evidence shows that the charts used by Noonan and Earhart placed Howland Island nearly six miles off of its actual position. Six miles. So these circumstances led to a series of problems that couldn't be solved. As Earhart and Noonan reached the supposed position of Howland Island, they maneuvered into their north and south tracking route to find the island. They looked for visual and auditory signals from the Itasca, but for various reasons, radio communication was very poor that day. Maybe the clouds. And then it says, there was also confusion between Earhart and the Itasca over which frequency to use. And a misunderstanding as to the agreed upon check-in time. I mean, this is all a nightmare. The flyers were operating on Greenwich Civil Time, and the Itasca was operating on the Naval Time Zone, which set their schedules 30 minutes apart. Time zone issue. God. It's like they needed a coordinator. Was that supposed to be Fred Noonan? Was that supposed to be his job? Or do we imagine like there should have been a whole nother, like the schedule person on the ground, you know? Because I don't want to blame Fred for everything. It does seem like he was in a position to do a lot. But like, you know, if someone else miscalculated the time zone, like I'm just I'm trying to figure out like how much blame does he deserve, you know? Yeah, I think you're right. From what I know, they had a whole crew. I mean, clearly the Coast Guard was involved. So there were people that were managing this. I don't know who this was. I don't know if that fell upon uh, her husband, Hmm. who was, you know, her manager. I think, yes, we can put bad maps. I think we can put celestial navigation up on the board. (laughs) The, The idea that they were just not on the right frequency is my worst mm-hmm. nightmare. Well, just a slight addendum to uh, the celestial nav. I mean, it wasn't necessarily the celestial navigation that got them in trouble. Fred was actually pretty good at it. To so Sally's point, uh, it works, right? Yeah. So it was maybe just the clouds. Like, if you want to blame the clouds. Oh, I mean, cloudy. The clouds got in the way of the celestial nav. Yeah, I guess that's true, but it's kind of like an inherent flaw in celestial nav that the clouds can get in the way, you know? It's kind of hard. Like, the mm. clouds are part of the whole celestial picture you know what i mean <laughs> right see, you're, you're seeing the seeing clouds. the celestial bodies well you have to be able to see the celestial right, right, bodies right, right. right what about time zones you want to put time zones up on the board maybe you know i actually 
I did a whole story about this at my old job at the uh, podcast Planet Money about literally where do time zones come from? And they're very recent. And in fact, I know from that that now planes actually operate on... I believe it's called universal time. Like planes in the sky do actually, in fact, have like a 24-hour clock that is the same always for this exact reason because you don't want to be like coordinating planes now. There's so many planes flying all over. You can't have them crashing into each other. You can't be calculating like what time is it in Qatar? What time is it in Dublin? What time is it in New York? Like it's just too much. So they actually like... They changed that. So I think time zones should be on the board. Like <gasps> Absolutely. Definitely. They cause a lot of my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I know, isn't that crazy? It's like the same time everywhere in the sky. I love that fact. I I'm personally hate time, time zones, <laughs> but whatever. I, I feel like we need to talk about Amelia Earhart herself. We have to. I've been dreading this, but we have to. Ah, oh, Sally. Now, I got, have to give a shout out to Mullen, who helps me with my research. She, like, you know, put this on her document, was like, you know, maybe there are accounts that possibly she just wasn't a great flyer. <gasps> Bite oh. your tongue. I know. <laughs> Mullen, how dare you? But then I, of course, was doing my own research, and it just keeps popping up. And I just want to say that we're not here to, to do any Amelia Earhart bashing, right? We're not trying to discredit her as an important figure in history, but there are some questions. And I feel like to take her seriously and give her the full respect she deserves, we got to ask, you know, we can't just, she was flying the plane and the plane disappeared. So like, you know, if she were here, I'm sure she would say, we have to think about the pilot. Absolutely. There are a lot of people with a lot of feelings on the internet, as we know. Oh yeah, totally. (laughs) And one of these people... (laughs) Are at you know it's a writer uh, from the Atlantic. She says Amelia Earhart was a remarkable uh, woman for her time. I give her a lot of credit for not wanting to be defined by her gender, but she was far from the only one and far from the best at what she did. She was only the best known, and this is correct. Um, there were a, a, a good amount of women who were in av- aviation at the time doing some incredible things. There was Bessie Coleman, who was uh, the first African-American woman to be licensed airplane pilot. There was Poncho Barnes. She was a stunt pilot for Hollywood. There was Amy Johnson. So there were, in fact, other famous female aces in the early decades of aviation, and all of them were daring. Some were set to be better pilots than Earhart. As for the great mystery surrounding her disappearance... This, as she goes on to write, I don't know a lot of pilots who think it's such a great mystery. I've flown in the South Pacific. It's a horizon-to-horizon stretch of unmarked nothing. And in the 1930s, it was far easier to get lost and crash there than it was to reach any destination safely. Perfection across 15 or more hours is hard to accomplish. And imperfection meant that you died, because finding a lone aircraft in the Pacific is even harder than finding a lone island credit the writer there uh her name's lane wallace and according to biography.com she was an intelligent and competent pilot who never panicked or lost her nerve but she was not a brilliant aviator her skills kept pace with aviation during the first decade of the century but as technology moved forward with sophisticated radio and navigation equipment Earhart continued to fly by instinct mm. She recognized her limitations and continuously worked to improve her skills, but the constant promotion and touring never gave her the time she needed to catch up. Hmm. And we'll come back to this later. 
but I think we need to discuss. Quite the indictment there. Yeah. Well. It begs the question, was this whole flying around the world sort of an unnecessary publicity stunt? Well, that's what it's, yes, essentially. A lot of people have said yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, final answer. Yes, 100%. There had been someone who had already flown uh, around the world. Her whole thing was that she was going to do it by the equator. Mm. So that was going to be a longer, it was going to take longer. Definitely an incredible feat. You know, we actually did We did an episode on History This Week about the first flight around the world, which I think was in 1924. And my sense of that was like, yeah, it pretty much was not just a publicity stunt in that case, but also like a thing for national pride, like all these nations were competing for it. But I guess by the time Amelia did it, it does seem like it sort of become, yeah, something she really wanted to prove and do and do for her. Yeah, her reputation and her status in the world, which I mean, you know. That's fair. Fair enough. Yeah, totally. Brings me back to the Antarctica expedition that we Mm. just talked about, which was another sort of need to be the first at something or Mm -hmm. these sort of thrill seeker types. You know, once they start, it becomes their identity. And I mean, what was she going to do? Retire? Well, she was essentially, she was 39 when she died. Mm. So she was technically... Getting older. I mean, 39 is like, Jesus. <laughs> How dare you say that about a 39 year old? Right. Mm. But in those times, and it, on top of that, she was a woman. Can I just say a fun fact that I learned when I was uh, doing a little reading about Amelia Earhart was that female aviators at the time were actually called aviatrixes. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> I know. I love that. Whoa. Since we're talking about all these aviatrixes, I know. It's great. <laughs> so our, our aviatrix was 39. So right. she was, this was kind of her last hurrah. Man. It was like her farewell tour. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's also this idea where she went by instinct versus like actually stuck to the plan or maybe like I, I know she mapped her routes, but... Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like she was dedicating a lot of time to the publicity side of her business and not as much time to the rapidly advancing technology side. Of- she's, uh, she's got to go up on the board. I almost feel like, is, is like Amelia the pilot and then the whole issue of the publicity stunt, like almost two things that could go on mm. the board? I don't know what to call the publicity one, but it's like there's Amelia and it's like, okay, you know... The, the plane crashed. The plane didn't didn't land on the island. She was the pilot. We could fairly blame her. I think that's, you know, it's there, an argument could certainly be made. But I feel like the whole publicity thing, like, it feels more complicated. It feels bigger. It's like, okay, she there was already a man who had done this, and she wanted to do it, you know, and be the first woman to do it. And she needed money, and she needed fame, and, like, this is something people would pay attention to. I don't know. That part, like, somehow feels bigger than her. And I think we can maybe massage it into her husband. Mm, mm -hmm. Ooh, the manager. Mm. Sure. The the business brain of the. Yeah, because he's he's Amelia's husband, but he's also her manager. He's got this publishing house. He's the one who's setting up the publicity events. He's the one with the idea to do this as a publicity stunt. And on top of it, he is the one with the idea to say it's for science. And they had a very interesting uh, relationship. According to Time, she got the attention of George Palmer Putnam, publisher of Charles Lindbergh's book, 
who had uh, he was looking for a Lady Lindbergh at the time to replicate the success of the first solo nonstop of Lindbergh. It is crazy. Have you guys seen how much they look alike? The pictures of them next to each other, Amelia and Charles. <laughs> Really? It's they they look like twins. It's really crazy. I know she was oh, called really? like Lady Lindy or like Lady, Lady Lindbergh. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> and it's because they look so much like you should google. It's really it's really it's uncanny. They look really similar. Yes. Well, and also when you put the hat on, the aviator, <laughs> the cap. <laughs> wow. Wow, they, they do. They they have the same sort of like furrowed kind of like serious that brow yeah and like wide tall. set kind of downturned eyes in the same mm-hmm. face shape they really mm-hmm. are and they similar haircuts maybe this is a conspiracy <laughs> theory that needs to uh get started which yeah. is that they were twins or maybe they were the same person <laughs> <laughs> so maybe we should put charles Lindbergh up on the board just based on that Honestly, we can't put Charles Lindbergh because this whole thing started because of him. Mm-hmm. Now, we need to talk about Harry Manning and Paul Mance. Have you guys heard of these two people? No. Mm-mm. Harry Manning was initially on her first attempt. Now, as we recall, there were two attempts to fly. The first one included this guy, Harry Manning, who was her actual navigator, and Paul Mance, who was an advisor and a mechanic. And on March 20th, before they took off from Honolulu, so, so they're scheduled to go from Honolulu to Howland Islands. Because if you recall, the first attempt at this flight around the world, they were going westward versus the second attempt, they went east, eastward. Manning is on board with her as well as Noonan. They're on the Electra. She Earhart restarts the engine and they begin to taxi to the northeast corner of the runway weather was good. Amelia Earhart accelerates for takeoff, and according to United States Army Board of Investigation report, describes what happened next. Hmm. On reaching the end, Miss Earhart turned and, after a brief delay, opened both throttles as the airplane gathered speed. It swung slightly to the right. Miss Earhart corrected this tendency by throttling the left-hand motor. The airplane then began to swing to the left with increasing speed characteristic of a ground loop it tilted outward right wing low and for 50 or 60 feet was supposed to be uh was supported by the right wheel only the right hand landing gear suddenly collapsed under this excessive load followed by the left airplane spun sharply to the left on its belly and amid a shower of sparks of sparks from the mat came to rest at about 200 degrees from the initial course. There was no fire. Miss Earhart and her crew emerged unhurt. So according to this uh, podcast, uh, Astonishing Legends, who did an episode about this, by some accounts, it was the first time that Amelia had experienced real fear. It was going to take several months to repair the plane because it had to travel back to Burbank. And Manning decided he was not going to go on the second trip. Maritime Commission had given him a leave of absence, and the leave of absence was over, but some suggested that he lost faith in her after the crash. So he was this incredible navigator, and, but he, his particular skill was Morse code. The plane had been equipped with Morse code, but since he was no longer going to be on the flight the morse code on the plane was stripped off 
And now we're going to hear from Susan Wells, author of Amelia Earhart, The Thrill of It, about Amelia's relationship with the aviation technology of the time. Now, I compare it to um, people who grew up using typewriters when the world shifted to personal computers. (laughs) How that generation, some people in that generation were a bit slow on the uptake. And similarly, Amelia, I don't think, realized how critical those new skills were to her flight. Um, And the reason is that when she first started flying, planes didn't have radios. Uh, When she flew across the Atlantic the first time in 1927, and she wanted to communicate a ship that they saw in the water below, what did she do? She wrote a note, she put it in a bag, stuffed a couple of oranges in it for ballast, and hurled it through the hatch of the plane. And he (laughs) said, That was was plain ship communication in 1927. And in that case, of course, he missed completely and it it went far from the ship. Um, So that's how she, that's what she knew when she started. And then the first time that she used radio on a major flight was when she flew solo from Oakland to Honolulu in 1935. Her plane had a radio telephone and she was able to stay in two way communication with ships and shore stations during the flight. She even heard GP talking to her from a radio station in Honolulu. But in 1937, when she was getting ready for her last flight, the Electra's radio equipment was new and complicated and a little troublesome. They were having problems with it. And worse, Amelia only spent one hour of training in how to operate the communication system. This is why it was like a generational shift, a technology shift. She just didn't, I don't think she really understood how crucial it was. And and that was compounded by another, as it turned out, fatal mistake. She took the Morse code equipment off the plane because she wanted to reduce the weight. And she also took off a a long radio antenna. So all in all, it was, a scenario that was kind of ripe for disaster since they were relying on voice radio alone. They just didn't have the skills, they didn't have the equipment, and they didn't have the backup skills in Morse that would have enabled them to stay in contact with people who could tell them where they were and where they were going. Listen to our full discussion with Susan Wells on Thursday's episode of The Aftermath. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. 
To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, back to the show. No Morse code, I think we can put up on the board. Sure. Along with Manning. I mean, he, he ditched her. There's maybe something also to think consider is this failed first attempt she's sort of gotten her own head maybe i mean i'm totally yeah. speculating but she crashed on her way to the howland islands the first time maybe in her mind she was like okay the howland islands i gotta do it it's the howland islands i gotta land there howland islands and then she just you know so let's put, lost um, it yeah the uh howland islands nerves <laughs> Self-doubt, you know, <laughs> you can always blame and self-doubt. finally, I want to talk about the aircraft itself. Also, in oh, yeah. talking about Amelia Earhart's, like, uh, ability, even if she wasn't the best pilot, she must have been an incredible pilot because these planes were really hard to fly. Hmm. There's this uh, aviation expert by the name of Boyd Kelly who said... Uh, that these aircrafts um, that were being used at the time were not put together well. They were not made for the stress of air flying. They were cheaply made to keep the cost down. Even if you didn't have a crash, you were always trying to put something together together to fix the aircraft. There was always a problem. This time and period in the 20s and 30s predates any sort of safety regulations. And open cockpit planes were at, were uh, out. You're there out in the elements. Imagine taking off in fog, your only navigation being roads. At nighttime, they lit bonfires to lead the way. Leather jackets were actually very necessary. They weren't just fashion. It was like literally you needed it because... Wow. They were also fashion, to be clear, but... (laughs) Still looked cool. Should we put the fashion industry up? (laughs) We could. I know. I always want to blame them. (laughs) Amelia did design a line of clothes. I saw she had like her own Amelia Earhart brand. Part of publicity, shall we say... That whole that whole nexus. And she also fashion. she also uh, uh, was a face of Lucky Strike cigarettes. So she was just like a big celebrity. That's what we have to remember. I do think we we might might need to revisit and put up on the board publicity stunts or something like that mm-hmm. because I know that Amelia Earhart had received scrutiny before for doing flights that were quote-unquote stunt flights right and and her thing was guys do this all the time and they're not criticized why can't i do these sorts of paid promotional flights but it does seem like she had a history of doing these sorts of things um that were kind of maybe driven by her husband so what do you what could we call that i was thinking Mm -hmm. maybe what about there's amelia Earhart the person and amelia Earhart the brand Mm. 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 personal Mm -hmm. branding Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I feel you, Amanda, because it's also like the public wants this, you know, like it's not like she's sitting around in her house being like, what would I most like to do a publicity stunt across the Atlantic? But it's like she needs to make money. The public will eat this up. But that's not entirely on her. So I'm with you. I think publicity stunt and or Amelia Earhart, the brand 
strong case to yeah, be made. Yeah, because it's that that was difficult when your livelihood is tied up with risky endeavors. There's like the fact that she felt like she was a sack of potatoes on that first flight, right? Like maybe that's part of self-doubt, but it's like she 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 felt like she was getting credit for not having done real flying. So she wanted to do real flying, you know? And that's kind of sad to me. It's like, okay, that totally has to do with sexism, right? Like she did this flight, but there was a male pilot and she wanted to do it like on her own steam as sexism, the pilot. Sexism like right? of the time and honestly of the still time. Of the still today time, yeah. Where you like, she had to go above and beyond in order to prove herself, and even do like something that perhaps she wasn't fully prepared for, right? Right. But she was thirty nine. Maybe she was like, "Ah, I got to do this before I turn (laughs) forty. Like, we don't. I mean, again, I'm wildly (laughs) speculating, but but the sense that like she wasn't fully prepared for this flight. She maybe she didn't know Morse code. She wasn't up on all the latest tech, but she was like, I still have to do it. I just like have to prove to people that I can. Should we put up the pressure of 40? (laughs) <laughs> I like that. Well, is that like a midlife crisis? Yeah, kind of like forty yeah. is like a big deal. You're like, oh my god, what have I? Not only what have I done, but like, where am I going now after this? The pressure of forty. Sheesh. Yeah, <laughs> a little, a little disgust part of the Amelia Earhart story. We might have found it. <laughs> okay, so why don't we read? Uh, what we've got on the board right, right now because there is a lot. <laughs> right. Amelia Earhart. We got to narrow this down, guys. Ready? We got Fred Noonan, Bad Maps, Celestial Navigation, Slash Clouds, Time Zones, Amelia Earhart, The Person, Lindbergh, and Aviator Celebrity, No Morse Code, No Manning, Self Doubt, The Electra, Publicity Stunts, Amelia Earhart, the brand, Putnam, her husband, sexism, and the pressure of turning forty. <laughs> that's high up. I, that's high up. Honestly, um, I think we can kind of put together publicity stunts and the brand. Mm-hmm. So maybe pub- publicity stunt includes Time the idea zones. of the brands. I do. I, I, that might be my new uh, fashion industry. Where I try and get time zones <laughs> in, I got, in jail. I, I think time zones could be a candidate for here the big I, Here's slap. what I would say to push back against that. She said she had 250-some-odd extra gallons of gasoline in her in the Electra there as she was flying over the Pacific. And so I think if there's a half-hour difference in time zones, to me, I just don't... that The math there doesn't make sense that the time zone is going to play that huge of an effect I, I, that and and for me, bad maps. It's like, you, what can you do about bad maps? You know, they didn't have satellites, so they couldn't perfect their map. And Pacific was kind of like unknown territory, uncharted territory for them. So I think we mm-hmm. can take both of those off of the list. But don't worry, I'll get yeah. time zones. I think we can remove <laughs> Charles Lindbergh. He's sort of part of the publicity stunt industrial complex, you know, but he alone does not maybe deserve yeah, the blame himself. Agree. As much as I feel uh, pre- so much pressure turning 40 as I'm approaching my 38th birthday on June 20th, <laughs> I just don't I just don't see that as being the reason. I uh, actually think it, it is. I, I think we need to keep it up there because she wouldn't have had to make such a big publicity stunt if she didn't think that once she was past 40, she was going to have to retire. 
So what about getting rid of self doubt? Because that's such conjecture. I mean, all of this. Is yeah. Important, yeah. But. No, you're, you're right. right. We fully made yeah. that up. I think we can get rid of self-doubt and her whole Howland Islands <laughs> internal crisis. I love that you went with it, Sally, though. <laughs> you know, um, could have been. I mean, sexism is a part of it, but I, I don't think that's what ultimately brought her disappearance. I think that's what mm-hmm. drove her. I feel like both that and the pressure of 40 are kind of like, again, part of the whole idea of a publicity stunt. Like, I feel like, you know, that's all tied up in like the pressure that she felt to do it is has to do with sexism and her age and the pressure that she felt to do it when she was young probably has to do with sexism, too. You know, I, I don't know. I feel like publicity stunt is looking pretty strong and maybe more so yeah, than I either think we of those. Can take yeah, those off the list and keep publicity stunt. Uh, you know, I think we can put celestial navigation with Fred Noonan because without him, there is no celestial navigation. Well, great point <laughs> <laughs> for for amelia at least right for that flight sure um so we've got fred we've got amelia we've got manning and we've got the plane publicity stunts and putnam the husband now i kind of put putnam with a publicity stunt he kind of uh, I, I guess he to me represents the publicity stunt and he pushed it, right? Like, he was really, he wanted her to do it. In all fairness, you can't place the blame on him totally because I think she was willing. I think she was a very strong person that if she didn't want to do it, she would have said, I don't want to do it. Right. Um, what about I, losing yeah, Manning? I was just going to say that because Morse code would have helped, but I don't know. You, you I mean, can't. a better navigator would have helped, but... Yeah, not knowing Morse code, man. I mean, that's is that on Amelia and Fred themselves? Kind of, you yeah, know? a little. But I guess like if she thought he was going to be with her, Manning, then why would she learn it? So you know, I feel for her. But on the other hand, she really needed it at that moment. So let's she didn't take know Manning it. off. I think we can take the plane off. I think it did its best, right? It probably did its best. It wasn't like it fell apart. They're the one. They're the right. ones to, who made the adjustments to the plane as they went on this trip. So they have sort of full control over the, the plane. I think. Here's what I'm thinking. I think we give Amelia and Fred the big slap, and we send publicity stunts to jail. <laughs> that that feels good to me. To be honest, I didn't. I didn't want to give just Amelia or just Fred. The big slap. I feel that it was both of them together. You know, they were a team. She was the pilot and he was the navigator and the plane was lost. So I feel that both of them really, you know, they have something to answer for. Neither of them learned Morse code. (laughs) And if they, and if there wasn't this pressure on age and this whole like need to make a big splash, then she maybe would have like, I don't know, taken another trip to... Mexico, like <laughs> flown it totally somewhere, you know, more that made more sense. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Or she would have waited and learned Morse code, you know, like how long would it have taken her to learn Morse code? <laughs> Maybe a year. If she would have been over 40. All would have been lost. <laughs> yeah, I feel you. Uh, all right. So it's settled. Fred and Amelia, you're getting a bit the big slap. Publicity stunts. You're going to the alarmist jail. It is going to change the the national economy, mm-hmm. I think, to have publicity stunts <laughs> in jail. 
Well, Sally, thank you so much for joining us today and getting down to the bottom of who's to blame for the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. One of the biggest mysteries solved. We did it. Oh, thank you so much. It was great to be here. (laughs) After Amelia Earhart's disappearance, despite many theories, no proof of Amelia Earhart's fate exists. There is no doubt, however, that the world will always remember Amelia Earhart for her courage, vision, and groundbreaking achievements both in aviation and for women. In 1938, a lighthouse was constructed on Howland Island in her memory, and across the United States, streets, schools, and airports are named after Earhart. In a letter to her husband, written in case a dangerous flight proved to be her last, her brave spirit was clear. I am quite aware of the hazards. I want to do it because I want to do it. Women must try to do things as men have tried. When they fail, their failure must be but a challenge to others. Vote for who you think is to blame by going to thealarmistpodcast.com. Follow us at the Alarmist the on Twitter, at the Alarmist Podcast on Instagram, or email us at thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Tune in next week. We'll be talking about the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. Erios. Powered by ACAST. 